0: Digital Marketing Radio, episode 174. Growing a digital marketing agency from China. DigitalMarketingRadio.com. Digital Marketing Radio is part of the 3B podcast network. UK casters talking business growth. Find out more over at 3BPN.com. The big interview with Baby
1: Bain.
0: I'm joined today by a man who failed at business through most of his career. And then. Nearly went out of business in 2012. But now, he's a TEDx speaker, a TechCrunch author, and has grown his own agency to 25 staff while based in China. Welcome to DMR, Josh Stimley.
1: Hi, David. Glad to be here.
0: Oh, great to have you here, Josh. Um, Well, you can find Josh over at joshstimley.com, and that's Stimley spelled S T E I M L E. So, Josh. That's correct. <laughs> good, good, good. good. Um, started off in the right way. <laughs> so, uh, Josh, how did you turn it all around?
1: Well, so first, one slight correction. They're not all in China. We have teams here in Asia and then we have a team, uh, part of our team is in the United States as well. So we're split office, we're uh, global, we have multiple offices. You,
0: but You jumped to my next question actually, I was going to just clarify exactly where all your staff were. <laughs>
1: Yeah. And today, one of the great things about running a business today is you can run a business from anywhere. So we've got people spread out throughout the U.S. and Asia, and a lot of people are virtual, and it's great. So, But going back to that question of turning things around, I worked for years. I started my business in 1999, and it wasn't until 2012, 2013, really, that I felt like I started to achieve some sort of success. And During those first years, the first 12, 13 years, a lot of people thought that my business was successful because we're a marketing firm and we are good at making ourselves look successful, but behind the scenes, we were a mess. We weren't profitable. We were losing money. I was going into debt and it was always just a grind to get things done and I could never make any progress. We Consistently performed doing around $500,000 US per month. So, or I mean, per year. So, we were a small business and we could just never break past that. And then in 2013, we just shot past a million and now we're up into the multiple millions. And there are two main things that made a difference. One was I brought on a partner. And it's amazing how having somebody else to report to can make a difference when you're running an agency and making decisions or maybe any type of business. And then the other thing was that we really invested in content marketing. I started writing for Forbes magazine and that led to opportunities with TechCrunch and Mashable and Inc. and other publications. And that content combined with the skills of my partner who was very strong on sales, something I was weak at combined to just create the perfect chemistry and really helped our business take off.
0: There's so many questions that I can actually just um, evolve the the conversation from there. I mean, the the first thing is your partner. How did you actually find your partner? Did you know your partner for a long time?
1: Yes, the funny thing is my partner is my brother-in-law and I always swore I would never ever work with family. I would never hire family because you hear too many nightmare stories about that. And this guy has been my brother-in-law since he was 12 years old. So I've known this guy since he was a little kid. And that's kind of how I saw him as he grew up. And then he went into sales and he, uh, one Christmas, we were together at a family event and I was saying, boy, sales is what I'm really weak at. And do you have any tips for me? And he started giving me tips on how to improve sales in my business. And I would go back and apply them and they'd work. So then I said, hey, do you want to be kind of a part-time consultant? I think we can handle that without getting into those family dynamics. I just need a little advice. So he started giving me advice, and that worked out really well. So then I said, hey, can you work for me part-time? And he said, yeah, sure. So he started working part-time, and then it became full-time. And then it became just, hey, you're the partner I've been looking for all these years. Let's just make this official. And we became 50-50 partners in the business, and then it just took off. And it's been great. So we've been able to manage the family stuff, and it's been successful.
0: Brilliant. And in relation to your content marketing that you've done that you're doing, how did you start to measure the impact from it? And how did you decide um, that Forbes or TechCrunch or wherever else were the better places to write?
1: Well, when you start writing for these publications, you get to write for the publications and it's not so much picking and choosing, right? At least not for me. Hmm. Uh, For me, Forbes coming to me was just a stroke of luck, a blessing that came to me. I had a friend who was writing for Forbes and I asked her how she got that gig. And she explained to me that they have this contributor model where people can contribute articles and they get to write for Forbes. And she introduced me to her editor and they signed me up. And At first, I thought, well, this is just a great opportunity. I like writing, and I get to write for this more established publication instead of just on my own blog where nobody cares. And then I started writing about digital marketing, and that's when we started getting the leads in. And there was no question about attribution or where the leads were coming from because we went from very few leads to all of a sudden this fire hose of leads coming in, and everybody was saying, oh, yeah, I read your article on Forbes. And We want to hire you. And so it was obvious where the traffic was coming from. And after I started writing for Forbes and we started getting those results, I thought, you know, someday I might lose this. Something might change. Forbes could get bought out. My editor might change. And I need to diversify my risk here. So then I started leveraging what I was doing at Forbes to write for other publications. And I got on at all these other publications and we started getting leads from those sources as well. But actually nothing has been as good for us as Forbes has been. So it's been pretty easy to measure and I would love to find another outlet that is as good as Forbes, but I've written for 15, 20 publications now, including Time Magazine, and nothing has generated results like Forbes has actually.
0: Wow, that's interesting, because um, I've certainly seen Forbes appear at the top of search results for many different keyword phrases. I must admit that um, their form of pub- publishing where they drive a lot of traffic to adverts first and you have to click through that and then you get to the article has put me off a little bit, but obviously they get a lot of traffic and it's certainly worthwhile for contributors.
1: Yeah. Every once in a while, somebody will approach me and say, is it worth my time to write for Forbes? And I say, yeah, it's uh, it's worth a couple of million dollars. So yeah, I'd say that's worth your time.
0: Okay. <laughs> so... Why China? How long have you actually been in China for?
1: So we moved to Asia a little over three years ago and my wife and I, we came here because we were looking into adopting a child, an older child, and the process here is a little slow and we decided that it would be a good idea for us to move here and learn a bit about the language and the culture because we're adopting an older child who won't speak English. and we moved here with our family and we've been learning that language and the culture and about the food and everything just to try to ease this transition. We're still working on that adoption, but it wasn't a business reason or professional uh, career track that brought us over here It was just this personal side. But then once I moved over here, in order to get a visa and stay, we had to open a business and or an office for the business. So we opened an office in Hong Kong first and we were there for three years. And then we just moved to Shenzhen, China, which is just across the border into China from Hong Kong. And it's been an amazing experience to be over here, not just for personal reasons, but business-wise. There is so much opportunity over here. And for those people who are in the US with the UK or more established Western markets, you deal with so much competition in the form of digital marketing. I mean, there's so many experts, there's so many great people. And then you come here to Asia and just nobody does what we do in the West. I mean, I shouldn't say nobody, but there are very few competitors, relatively speaking. I moved from Utah to Hong Kong. And in Utah, I probably have 400 SEO firms that I'm competing against. And in Hong Kong, I have maybe four or five. And then in China. Uh, We come here and I walk into meetings and companies say, we're looking for a company that has an office in Shenzhen and Hong Kong and the US and does digital marketing. And I say, well, I think you've narrowed it down to about one. I think we're (laughs) the only one that fits what you're looking for. So the amount of competition is very low and the market is huge. We've got more than half the world's population within a four hour flight of Hong Kong And all these businesses here that are growing like crazy, it's just, there's so much opportunity in the numbers here.
0: I guess the perception probably from the States and the UK and and other places in the Western world is that um, there's a lot of bureaucracy and doing business in China is very difficult. Is that fair?
1: Yes. But to be fair to China, that's kind of the way it is everywhere, right? I mean, I faced a lot of bureaucracy in the United States and Coming here to China, it's been easier than I thought it would be. And I would encourage anybody who's in digital marketing or tech to make a trip out here, spend a month here. It will open your eyes and you might never go back.
0: Wow. Okay. So is that the case for you? You might never go back?
1: Uh, Seriously, my wife and I talk about this and we say, do we really ever want to leave? And we have some other reasons we want to go back. Uh, There are things that we want to do, but... My wife says, promise me that we'll never get stuck in the U.S. again, that we'll be coming back here someday if we ever do go back to the U.S. We just we love it over here. And it's just so eye opening and it's so dynamic and active. And there's so many people from all around the world here. It's it's it, it would be easy for me to live the rest of my life here. I would love it.
0: So are most of your newer clients
1: based in China now? This is really where the growth is happening. We're still signing up clients in the U.S. and our office is growing there, but the deals that we have access to here are much larger and there's so many more deals coming to us. We get opportunities to bid on deals here that we would never have the opportunity to bid on in the U.S. because in the U.S. we're dealing with so many competitors, whereas here we're kind of the only option or one of very few options.
0: So, um, obviously, you're growing in terms of numbers of clients. So you, you've probably had a few different experiences when it comes to dealing with good clients and um, not so good clients. What makes a successful client agency relationship?
1: We have gone through a lot of evolution in how we maintain our client relationships. When we started our business, we were just a group of people who were getting stuff done. And then you start growing past 10 team members and you realize we need a little more process and we need to organize things a little bit better. And one of the things we've really invested in is account management, which is hard for a digital marketing agency because you want to hire The people who are doing the work and you feel like we need more seos we need more paid search people we need more social media more content marketing and it's hard to take a chunk of your budget and say let's hire an account manager who doesn't actually do the work they just manage the relationship but that's been huge for our success as we've hired more account managers who manage communication with the client make sure that things are on track That's where we've seen the biggest boost in customer satisfaction and our retention numbers going up and getting testimonials from clients. It all happened when we started investing more in account management.
0: So what makes a great account manager?
1: A great account manager is somebody who, it might sound simple, but they're just really nice, nice people. And so we hire people who are really friendly, really outgoing, love talking. You know, some people are kind of they avoid talking to people. I'm kind of that way. I'm a little bit antisocial. And we hire people who are the life of the party, who just love talking to people, who would just talk to people all day if that's what they could do. And so they're very enthusiastic and outgoing. And that's what we find makes for great communication. You know, they say people do business with people they like and trust. We hire people who are easy to like and trust and they're great account managers for us. They also have to be pretty organized and be on top of tech and just keeping track of stuff.
0: Sometimes um, being gregarious, having a nice personality and being
1: quite organized doesn't necessarily go, but... um... So, I mean, it takes some work. We have to go through an extensive interview process to find the right people, but we've, we've really found some great account managers and it's made a big difference in our business.
0: So talking about growth, you, you've obviously mentioned that you brought on a partner, that made a big difference. Um, your sales increased significantly because of that. You, fo- you focused more on systems. Are there any other tips that you could give with regards to growing an agency quickly?
1: So the other thing that we found that helped our business to grow in addition to having the right account managers is we focused, started focusing really on culture. We had made a few hires of people that we were very skilled technically. They were great with SEO or paid search and they had all those technical skills we were looking for, which was very easy to verify. But then we got them on and after they worked for a few months, we realized these people are hard to work with and our other team members are working around them instead of with them. And they're pessimistic and they complain about clients and they have a negative attitude. And We found that that lack of culture fit really slowed our business down and kept us from growing. And when we got people with the right culture, we could just grow quickly and fast and it made all the difference in the world. So we've changed our hiring processes to focus now first on on culture and second on skills. And that's made a big difference in the growth of our business as well.
0: And can you ask the right questions to demonstrate fit for culture, or is it just more of an instinct thing to see if someone actually
1: gets on with you? This is something we're working on right now, and I've been doing tons of research on culture, and we're trying to figure out what is the right test to find that culture fit. But some things that we've done that have helped with that culture fit to verify is Before, when we hired people, we do maybe one or two interviews, maybe I'd interview somebody, and then I'd go to my partner and say, hey, I found this person. They're really great. Let's hire them on. They just seem like really great people. And then we'd hire them on and we realized, no, they're not the right fit. So now we do three interviews with everybody that we hire, no matter what. We always check references because often those references know whether that person is going to be a good hire or not. We didn't used to really check references much. We just trusted our own judgment Now we always get at least three references and we call those references and we talk to them and we quiz them and we say, how did this person work with others? Did you have any issues? Is there anything I should know before hiring this person? And just those two things alone, doing three interviews and checking three references have allowed us to screen out a lot of people who seemed great, but then once we checked the references or we did multiple interviews, we realized, no, they're not a fit for our culture.
0: So what percentage of people would you say that you actually turned down after thinking that they were a good f- fit yourselves, but perhaps bringing up some gremlins from the past um, through their references?
1: I'd say 25, 30 okay. percent. Uh, people that we are really excited about, then we go talk to their references and we realize, mm, no, that there are some things here that rule this person out.
0: And, and what would be an example of, of, of that kind of alarm bell that, that, that you discovered through a reference?
1: Uh, just the other day, I interviewed somebody and I thought, oh, this, this person's a young person. They have good instincts, good attitude. I think we can train this person. I think they'd be a good fit for our company. And then I went and spoke with one of the references and they said, you know, this person, yeah, they're young and they're, they've got a great attitude and they have a lot of potential, but you know what? They really have an ego and we saw in our company that they did not accept feedback, that they were always saying that the management was wrong and they didn't uh, want to do what the management was telling them to do and they weren't trainable. And so I thought, wow, well, that's a big red flag because if we're bringing on this person and we're assuming that we can train them, but you're telling me that they're not trainable because they don't listen because they already think they have all the answers. Well, that's, that's an easy decision to not hire that person.
0: Well, let's segue into the second section of our discussion. So that focuses on Josh's thoughts on where digital marketing's been and where it's heading. So starting off with...
1: Software I couldn't live without.
0: So Josh, what software do you currently use in your business that if someone took away from you, it would significantly impact your marketing success?
1: Without a doubt, it's Google Docs. I use Google Docs every day and especially the collaboration features are just incredible. So you take that away and I don't know how I would run my business.
0: Right. Okay. And a slightly more challenging question. What pieces of software don't you use, but you've heard good things about and you intend to try at some point in the near future?
1: Yeah. So um, one of the pieces of software that we've been, we use Jira for our project management. And there are other pieces of software that go along with Atlassian that we've heard great things about, like HipChat And we've looked into these, but we haven't really dove into those. And I'm curious to see if we have as good of an experience with some of those other tools from Atlassian as we have had with Jira.
0: It's interesting that both the tools that you mentioned there are internal focused or project management focused. Do you largely rely on content marketing to do the marketing for your agency? You don't spend a lot of time on paid marketing and um, other forms of marketing?
1: We do a lot of paid marketing and we do a lot of SEO and we have probably 30 different software tools that we're subscribed to for SEO purposes. But for me personally running the business, I'm in Google Docs a lot. I do a lot of content and I see a lot of the results from project management. So that's what I tend to focus on more is the internal side. And then my team focuses on the external side.
0: Got you. Okay. Um, so I'll include links to all your recommendations in the episode show notes at digitalmarketingradio.com. But let's move on to... I wish I would have. So I'd like you to look back on the very first day that you're involved in trying to market a business online. What didn't you do so well? What do you wish that you would have done differently?
1: Oh, I wish I'd been doing building an email list back in 1999 when I started my business. I didn't really start building an email list until last year. And if I had been building an email list starting in 1999, I would probably have a few hundred thousand subscribers today and what I could do with that list. That's the, that just kills me all these years without building that email list.
0: Well, you've started now, so that's the main thing now. And I guess it's about relevance and quality of the list rather than quantity of the list.
1: Yeah, but that would have given, given me a long time to focus on both.
0: So you've started um, now, what's your primary call to action? What's the main way that you actually go to um, collect your
1: emails at the moment? It's all about content marketing these days. Well, I shouldn't say all about content marketing. SEO is a fair part of that and Mm. social media and such, but it all starts with content. All marketing is content and channel. You have a content and then you have to choose a channel to deliver that content. And so we focus a lot on content. I produce a lot of content doing speaking and writing. Uh, My first book just came out. So all of this is content. And the idea is to use that to create an expert voice that draws people in.
0: But what's your call to action for your reason for someone to part with their name and email address? Is is it um, a free chapter or, or something like that?
1: Yeah. So on my own website, my personal website that I run, I give away a free chapter of my book. I also have an email course that teaches people how to become an influencer and get writing in Forbes and other publications like I do. So that's what I use with our company with MWI. We're working on some ebooks and uh, different options there. But again, we're behind when it comes to building our email list for the agency.
0: The this or that round. So this is the quick response round. Ten quick questions. Just two rows here. Try not to think about the answer too much. And you're only allowed to say the word both on one occasion. Ready to go? I'm ready. (whistles) Email or Twitter? Email. Audio or video? Video. Affiliates or display advertising? Display. USA or China?
1: China. (laughs) I'm going to get in trouble for that
0: one. Online press releases or one-on-one relations?
1: One-on-one relations.
0: Paid search or SEO? SEO. Email contact form or telephone number?
1: Telephone number.
0: Website or app? Website. Social subscriber or email subscriber?
1: Email subscriber.
0: And local marketing or global marketing?
1: Global marketing.
0: I'm just getting fed up of asking Facebook or Google+, Plus, so I decided to replace that question with something else off the cuff there, because um, everyone says Facebook now, so I need to come up with something else for that. But but it's interesting, so uh, China wins there as well. I don't think there was any question that you particularly struggled with. Uh, Did you find a challenge with anything there?
1: Trust me, I, I was struggling in my mind on a few of those, and uh, there would be a lot of caveats, and well, yeah, I really wanted to answer both on at least three or four of those.
0: Okay, well, you, you got away without any, so, so that's great, so we'll move on to.
1: The $10,000 question.
0: If I was to give you $10,000, and you had to spend it over the next few days on a single thing to grow your business, what would you spend it on, and how would you measure success?
1: If I had $10,000, I'd spend $1,000 on a round trip ticket to ver- visit Larry Kim, who you had on your podcast recently. Mm-hmm. I'd spend $500 taking him to an amazing dinner to pick his brain about social media advertising. And then I'd spend the last $8,500 on paid social to promote my content the way that he advocates. Uh, Larry's got some great ideas that I would really like to try out, but I need more understanding. And so that's why I'd go and have a dinner with him and talk about that and get some personal input from him.
0: Oh, he is a great guy. And that was a, a wonderful interview, certainly. So you should uh, go back and listen to that. Um, and uh, your viewer or listener, if you haven't done so already, I've certainly tested a few things that, uh, he suggested and what I've, found particularly interesting was he actually suggested just targeting PRs and bloggers on Twitter and marketing your content to them um, as a way for them to possibly rewrite about it or or share it. So you're not necessarily always advertising to your end user. It's marketing to people who are going to market in your behalf. And I found that to be an interesting concept.
1: Yeah, I heard Larry speak at the content marketing conference in Las Vegas earlier this year. And he gave this presentation talking about that content. And it just blew me away. I thought, "Oh, I've got to do this. We've got to find somebody who can do this. And it's easier said than done. He makes it look easy. Um, but yeah, I'm really excited to try out some of his ideas.
0: It's, it's, it's justifying some things as well. Uh, I've tried sharing um, videos um, as posts on Facebook and just um, paying about four cents per, um, per engagement, which seems not a lot, uh, but it's, it's measuring the end value of that that I, I guess can be a little bit challenging as well if you're really trying to, to, to pinpoint the value of things. You've got to combine a little bit of um, instinct with that measurability as well.
1: Yeah, there is, there's always uh, the devil in the details, right? Yes, yeah.
0: My number one takeaway. Josh, you've offered a lot of great advice in the conversation, but what's the number one takeaway? What's the single most important step that our listener needs to take away and implement in their businesses?
1: It's empathy, I think. I recently had the opportunity to interview 30 CMOs from huge corporations PayPal, Spotify, GE. And one thing that came through to me from all these interviews I did was. These people really understand their customer. And in marketing, if you get your customer, you understand what motivates them, where they're coming from, why they buy, then you'll get all the right tactics. You'll figure out how to connect with them, how to sell to them. And so I think that empathy r- just trumps everything else that you can possibly do when it comes to marketing.
0: What's the name of your book, Josh? Because um, you wrote a
1: book on that. That's right. So my book is Chief Marketing Officers at Work, and it's 29 interviews with amazing CMOs. So if you want to be a CMO or work with a CMO or sell to a CMO, then this is a great book to learn more about the role of the CMO and who these people are and how they work.
0: Great stuff. Okay, well, that takes us to the end of our discussion today. So thank you so much for your time and your advice and for getting up at five o'clock in the morning in China for us. Um, Much appreciated.
1: Thank you so much for having me, David. It's been a pleasure.
0: Well, uh, what's the best way for a listener to find out more about you and what you do,
1: Josh? com. Well, that was
0: exceptionally short and sweet. I don't think um, we need to say any more because obviously all your social links and everything else will be on there as well. So thank you again. So um, thanks to Josh and thank you to your listener too. If you enjoyed what Josh shared today, tell us what you think. And iTunes review is always good and I might even read it out in a future episode. We've got 30 so far. Let's see some more for next episode. And if Twitter's your thing, at David Bain is my handle. Maybe it's your thoughts on this episode. Maybe it's your thoughts on what we should discuss on future episodes. Whatever it is, it would be great to hear from you. But until we meet again, be from and do one thing that scares you. Adios. Thanks again, Josh. Great episode. All right.